copy of God's Word and turn with me again to the book of Numbers. After a brief hiatus, we are returning for the foreseeable future uh, to our studies through this Old Testament book. Uh, And we are today in Numbers chapter 17. We'll say a word about our text before we get started, uh, largely that it is very closely connected to the chapter that came before it. So if you weren't with us two weeks ago, I encourage you to go back and read Numbers chapter 16. This is really the conclusion of that, uh, that portion of this narrative that began with a rebellion from Korah and those who were with him. Uh, today, this is uh, really, you could think of it as the third in a series of three stories affirming Uh, Aaron as God's chosen high priest. So if you have not, uh, go back and read Numbers chapter 16. And the second word that I have to say about this text is that we are not going to read all of chapter 18. We're going to stop at uh, chapter 18, verse 7 today. Not that the rest isn't important, uh, but I will leave that again for you to read. Uh, In Numbers chapter 18, the Lord is not only reestablishing Aaron, as his chosen high priest, but also reaffirming that the Levites are his chosen ministers in the temple, uh, in the tabernacle at this time. And and from verse 8 to the end of chapter 18, what we will see are uh, God's uh, God's laws concerning the tithes and the offerings and the contributions that were to be given both to Aaron and to the Levites. God essentially recognizing their service and calling the people of God to recognize their service as well. Uh, This is a wonderful, restorative message. Uh, As the the rebellion has just happened among the Levites, the Lord is saying, no, I am not turning away from my promises. And in fact, I will lead you into the promised land. And throughout your generations, because there will still be generations of you, uh, they will continue to serve and you will continue to contribute to them. So we're going to read today Numbers chapter 17, verse 1, through chapter 18, verse 7. I encourage you later this afternoon to read the rest of chapter 18 on your own. Lord willing, next week we will come and look at chapter 19. Before we read together, let's go to the Lord and uh, seek his blessing on our study. Let's pray. O gracious God and Father, we pray that as we open your word, you would open our hearts by your Holy Spirit. We ask for the wisdom to know and understand what it is that you have to teach us today, especially about the chosen high priest who you have given to draw us to yourself. Lord, we pray that through this text we would not only see about things that happened long ago, but we would see about the one who is living and active, who intercedes for your people at your right hand. Help us, Lord, to know more of him and to trust him because of our study of your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hear now God's word as we find it in Numbers chapter 17, beginning to read in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and get from them staffs, one for each father's house, from all their chiefs, according to their father's houses, twelve staffs. Write each man's name on his staff and write Aaron's name on the staff of Levi. For there shall be one staff for the head of each father's house. Then you shall deposit them in the tent of meeting before the testimony where I meet with you. And the staff of the man whom I choose shall sprout. Thus I will make to cease from me the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against you. Moses spoke to the people of Israel. 
and all their chiefs gave him staffs, one for each chief, according to their father's houses, twelve staffs, and the staff of Aaron was among their staffs. And Moses deposited the staffs before the Lord in the tent of the testimony. On the next day, Moses went into the tent of the testimony, and behold, the staff of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms, and it bore ripe almonds. Then Moses brought out all the staffs from before the Lord to all the people of Israel, and they looked, and each man took his staff. And the Lord said to Moses, Put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony, to be kept as a sign for the rebels, that you may make an end of their grumblings against me, lest they die. Thus did Moses. As the Lord commanded him, so he did. And the people of Israel said to Moses, Behold, we perish. We are undone. We are all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord, shall die. Are we all to perish? So the Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear iniquity connected with the sanctuary. And you and your sons with you shall bear iniquity connected with your priesthood. And with you bring your brothers also, the tribe of Levi, the tribe of your father, that they may join you and minister to you while you and your sons with you are before the tent of the testimony. They shall keep guard over you and over the whole tent, but shall not come near to the vessels of the sanctuary or to the altar, lest they and you die. They shall join you. And keep guard over the tent of meeting for all the service of the tent, and no outsider shall come near you. And you shall keep guard over the sanctuary and over the altar, that there may never again be wrath on the people of Israel. And behold, I have taken your brothers, the Levites, from among the people of Israel. They are a gift to you, given to the Lord to do the service of the tent of meeting. And you and your sons with you shall guard your priesthood for all that concerns the altar and that is within the veil, and you shall serve. I give your priesthood as a gift, and any outsider who comes near shall be put to death. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. Uh, Well, uh, last week, uh, almost two weeks ago now, one of our members sent me an article Uh, This article from the Associated Press uh, documents the ever-shifting demographics of American religion. Uh, The article opens with uh, a cliché, a scenario so cliché that it is practically predictable. So stop me if you've heard this one already. Uh, It begins, Mike Dulac grew up Catholic in Southern California. But by his teen years, he began skipping mass and driving straight to the shore to play guitar and to watch the waves and enjoy the beauty of the morning. And it felt more spiritual than any time I set foot in a church, he recalled. The article goes on to explain that Mike Dulac is part of the, uh, the large and growing category of American nuns. Not nun with a U, not like Sister Mary Margaret, nuns with an E. None as in religiously unaffiliated, independent voters in theological primaries. In America, the category of the non-religious nuns has a pretty wide uh, range of application. When you're talking about a non-affiliated, you might be talking about your dyed-in-the-wool atheists. 
You may be talking about your on-the-fence agnostics, or you may be talking about those, twice as likely actually, to be talking about those like Mike Dulac, who claim to be some version of, quote, spiritual but not religious. As the article points out, uh, that larger population, the nuns, it now makes up roughly half of American adults. In New England, that's probably higher. The takeaway being that these are the people that you know the people that you live and the people that you work with every day. This is the prevailing spiritual wind in our country. This is the approach to God that America speaks with all the fluency of a first language. And it makes perfect sense if you think about it. This is the ultimate expression of the American spirit. It is the democratization of everything even our approach to theology. We know the score, don't we? The last time some foreign monarch tried to tell us what to do, we chucked his tea in the Boston Harbor. And so when pastors stand in pulpits and they begin to say things like, you know, there's really only one way to come to God. There's really only one Savior that he has given. There's really only one book that gives us the truth about who we all are and where we've come from and where we're going. When Americans hear talk like that, it makes us want to look for something to throw overboard. Now, if you think back to the sin that led to this situation in Numbers chapter 17, the sin was precisely this approach. The democratization of our spirituality. Remember that in Numbers chapter 16, Korah gathered 253 of his closest friends. And they all came before Moses and Aaron, and they complained that, you know, their way of getting to God was just as good as anything that was going on inside the tabernacle. They were spiritual people, of course. And they were tired of all of these religious restrictions that were being pressed upon them by these people who were in charge. After all, didn't they have the same knowledge? Didn't they have the same worth? Didn't they have the same spiritual right to approach the God of the universe as this man in a, in a fancy breastplate and a big hat? Now, if you were with us last time we were in Numbers, you know how the story unfolds. God sets the record straight. He does so with fire and with fury and with a plague that kills nearly 15,000 Israelites by the time it's all over. And now, here in chapter 17, we find that there is still one more word that needs to be said about this democratic approach to God. And it's the Lord himself who's going to say it. As we look at, at Numbers chapter 17, you need to know that it's the God of Israel who takes initiative in this chapter. He is the protagonist. He is the prime mover. And as the chapter unfolds, you see the Lord doing three things. First, he reveals his will for worship. Second, he restrains the sin of rebellion. And third, he restores our fellowship with him. So with a half-hearted apology for my alliteration, those are our three points today. The Lord reveals, the Lord restrains, the Lord restores. We begin with God's revelation. Specifically, we begin with God revealing his right to direct our worship. 
I've mentioned already that it's God who takes initiative in this passage. That is visible from the opening lines. The Lord spoke to Moses. You can see that. It's plain enough. It's all the more striking, though, when you consider uh, the situation that led up to this miracle in chapter 17. Again, chapter 16, verse 1, we find that it was Korah who took the initiative. Korah came complaining about the priesthood. In chapter 16, verse 41, it's the people who take initiative. They gather together to complain to Moses about the punishment that fell on Korah. And in each situation, the judgment that came from God came as a response to the initiative of the people. It helps you think of it this way. In, in chapter 16, God was playing defense. Everything that God had to say to his people came as an answer, not as an invitation. Because they took the initiative, his response in chapter 16 was a responsive no. But here in chapter 17, it's a proactive yes. In chapter 16, God had to say, no, this is not the way that things are supposed to be. In chapter 17, he says, yes, this is the way that things are supposed to be. This is the way that I have chosen. This is the path that leads to righteousness. Here is the priest that I have chosen for myself. God reveals his right to direct our worship. Now, in order to do that, here in this passage, God proposes a test. That every tribe uh, bring a staff. A staff with the name of a tribal chief written on it. These staves in this society would have been symbols of authority, not entirely unlike a, a king's scepter. The chief of every tribe would have had some staff, probably uniquely carved with, uh, with symbols of their tribe, maybe taken from that passage in, in Genesis 49 when, uh, when all the tribes are blessed according to their characters. Maybe something like that, uniquely carved, but it, it identified the owner, and they were also to write the name of the tribal chief on each of those staffs. There's actually a double meaning in the Hebrew, because the word in Hebrew, mateh, which is translated staff, is the same word that is translated tribe. And so there is to be a perfect representation of each tribe in the form of these staffs given to the Lord, and the Lord is asking that they would submit uh, these things representative of their human authority. And verse 4 says that the Lord said to Moses that he should deposit those staffs, three things, in the tent of meeting, before the testimony, and where I meet with you. Those are the clues that the Lord is engaging in revelation. He's not just giving a miracle. He's not just engaged in a parlor trick to say, look at what I can do. The Lord is using this opportunity to teach and to lead his people. Whenever the Lord had new directives to pass on to the nation, what he would do is he would give those instructions to Moses. He would speak to his prophet in the tent of meeting. He would meet with him there. And then he would send his prophet back to the people to say, this is what the Lord reveals, what he declares for you. In addition, the Lord says, not only should it be in the tent of meeting where I meet with Moses, it should be before the testimony. That is, in front of the copy of the law, those two tablets that came down from Mount Sinai, in front of the copy of the law that was kept in the presence of the ark of the Lord. So you hear what God is saying. He's saying, Moses, you tell the leaders to submit themselves to my inspection. 
You tell them to bring all of their tribes symbolically into the place where my laws are remembered, into the place where I alone decide how to shepherd my people. And then I will show you who has the privilege of serving in my presence. Verse 5, and the staff of the man whom I choose shall sprout. So you see, the Lord is taking initiative. He's revealing his right to direct the worship of his people. And in fact, that is how he always operates. The Lord does not leave us to our own spiritual devices to grope in the darkness and try and find our way to him on our own. He condescends to reveal the way that we ought to go. The Lord in love and mercy stoops low to direct us and to shepherd us to himself. In fact, this sin of Korah and the rest of his company, the sin of these rebels lay specifically in the fact that they rejected the instruction that God had already given concerning the priesthood. Don't forget that when the Lord brought his people up out of Egypt, he brought them together and he said to Moses, this will be the sign, you'll worship me here on this mountain at Sinai. And they did. And they gathered at the base of Mount Sinai and there for 11 months the Lord gave them instruction concerning how they were to worship him. Instructions on the tabernacle, instructions on the priesthood, instructions on the offerings, instructions on the sacrifices and the feast days and every other aspect of their, uh, their Jewish religion. It was something that God had given to them, not something they invented. And when the Lord gave his instruction for worship, in those instructions, he told them some pretty significant things. He told them, one, that their sin had caused a separation between them and their God. That's what that whole sacrificial system was about. The fact that, that their sin left them liable to the judgment that came from the holy presence of a righteous God. But then he also told them, in all those instructions, that though there was a separation between them and their God, yet there was a way to come near. There was an invitation. There was a path that you could walk to come to the God of the universe, even though he's holy and you are not. So he gave them their religion. He instituted those sacrifices and feast days. He gave them the priesthood. It was not something they invented, but something they received, something they were supposed to submit to. And the Lord told them that when they submitted in faith to the way that he marked out, he would be near to them. He would bless them. He would shower his mercy upon his believing people. This is the way the Lord always works. He's the one who gets to set the rules of engagement. He has a right to direct our worship. Of course, we could, we could take this and we could apply it all the way down to the, to the minutiae of everything we do every time we gather together on Sunday morning. Think about why it is that we worship the way that we do here at Redeemer. Why is it that we spend so much time reading Scripture and not reading other stuff? Why is it that we sing the songs that we sing or even the kinds of songs that we sing? Why is it that we spend so much time in prayer? Or, or why don't we do some of the things that we don't do? Why don't we have icons? Why don't we have incense? Why don't we have interpretive dance? Why don't the elders sit down and let the women lead the service every once in a while? We 
can bring it all back to the same principle, that it's the Lord who gets to direct our worship. Among Reformed churches, this is known as the regulative principle of worship. God sets the rules of engagement, and we follow them. So we could apply it down to those sorts of levels, but actually the question here is far more fundamental than any of those little things. The question here in this passage is, how can sinners come into the presence of a righteous God? And the answer is, not just by any old way that we dream up for ourselves. Rather, God reveals what fellowship requires. Perhaps you remember Paul's exchange with the Greeks in Athens, in the book of Acts, chapter 17. In chapter 17 there in in Acts, Paul is among the philosophers, and the philosophers are doing what philosophers do. They're kicking their best ideas back and forth. They're hearing, they're evaluating, they're, they're distilling all the best knowledge they could get their hands on so that someday, somehow, they might begin to reach some tiny little nugget of universal wisdom that they can pass on through the ages. Actually, Acts 17 says it's a little less productive than that. 17 verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. That's what so much philosophical thought amounts to. Not all of it, of course, but but a lot of it. The unending search for intellectual novelty like a child in a candy store whose eyes are just bewildered, aghast at all of the different options on offer, and they want to run down the aisle and taste everything, even though they know it'll only make them sick in the end. And to the hopelessly philosophical mind, the word of Christ is only one more option. This great smorgasbord of spiritual enlightenment. Well, Paul puts it a different way. Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31, he says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, whom he has chosen. And of this, Paul says, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul says, your sin has made a separation. The scriptures say, your sin has made a separation between you and the God who exists. Your rebellion against that God has left you liable to judgment from the presence of his perfect holiness. And yet there's a way to come near. There's a man whom God has chosen There is a priest who brings sinners into fellowship with the righteousness of God. So Paul says, repent, turn, submit. Submit yourself to the way that God has revealed. Turn from trusting in your own strength and in your own knowledge and in your own spiritual enlightenment. Instead, believe in the resurrected Savior. This is what God commands, says the apostle. This is the only way that he has chosen. And all the way back in Numbers, the Lord is preparing us. He's revealing that 
In the exchange between God and man, only God gets to set the agenda. So the Lord said, bring your staffs, and I will reveal the man I have appointed. Two points so far. God reveals. Secondly, God restrains. God gives his commandments specifically to restrain our sin. Let's read the rest of verse 5. The Lord says, And the staff of the man whom I chose shall sprout. Thus I will make to cease from me the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against you. The Lord's saying he has a purpose with this miracle. He has a goal in mind. His goal with this staff, when the people saw this clear statement that the Lord had chosen Aaron, and he had only chosen Aaron and his line to be priest, it would settle the matter. God was giving them a sign so clear that they couldn't ignore it, a sign so clear that it would put an end to their sinful grumblings. What's more, and this is the important part, it would put an end to the judgment that their sinful grumbling was bringing upon them. So verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign for the rebels that they may make an end of their grumblings against me, lest they die. In other words, God's commands are not given to be a burden to his people. Instead, they're given to lead us into blessing. God's commands are not given to, to stifle spiritual creativity. God's commands are given to free us from the bondage to sin and self that always leads in the way to death. The Lord has gracious plans for his people, plans for salvation instead of destruction. The Lord has good things in store for his people, and so he takes the initiative to restrain our sin. But you know how it works. Because Paul tells us in Romans that those who are wrapped in sin are endlessly skilled and the art of suppressing the truth about God and about his gracious purposes for us. That's why so often when you talk to people who have heard the gospel and rejected it for whatever reason, very often what they will tell you is that what they find most unbelievable about Christianity is the constraints that it puts on personal choice and morality. It's too restrictive they might say. I, I, don't, I don't want to just be told what to do, what to believe, what to think, what to feel. Christianity, in that view, is really just about telling people all the things that they can't do, especially when those things are enjoyable or desirable. That view says that Christianity is about making individuals into spiritual automatons. Right? Good little, good little pew sitters that never color outside the line. That's why early in the 20th century, Emma Goldman said that Christianity is, quote, the breaker of man's will to dare and to do. She said Christianity is a straitjacket, an iron net, which does not let mankind expand or grow. It stifles. It restricts. It constrains. And we want nothing to do with that. And, of course, a, a skeptical reading of Numbers chapter 17 would say, there goes that straitjacket again. There goes the unnecessary restriction of religious power into the hands of just a few. 
Oh, that's how it always goes, doesn't it? There goes the God who loves to do nothing but keep humanity under his thumb. But if you understand the consequences of sin, the way that the Bible reveals the consequences of sin, then you see this flowering staff not as a burden, but as a blessing. If you understand sin the way the scriptures understand sin, you know that this miraculous sign was not some parlor trick designed to consolidate power into the ruling class. This is not a means of lifting up Aaron while knocking everyone else down. It's not an arbitrary restriction on self-expression. Rather, this flowering staff is an extension of God's saving grace for his people. It was an invitation to people who are already lost in their sin, an invitation to turn and to find life in the only way that the Lord has given. Consider the miracle itself in this passage. The Lord calls for a staff from each tribe to be brought before the place of his all-consuming holiness. Verse 8. It says, on the next day, Moses went into the tent of testimony, and behold, it means look at this, wow, pay attention, and behold, the staff of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted, as God had said, of course, but even more than that, the staff of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms and it bore ripe almonds, and then Moses brought out all the staffs from before the Lord to all the people of Israel, and they looked, better yet, and they saw, they witnessed, they verified what the Lord had done. Each man saw their own staff, then they also saw Aaron's staff. They saw this rod of Levi, this dead stick that had been placed before the Lord. When it went in, it was lumber dry as a desert, stiffer than rigor mortis. And when it came out, it was bursting with life. In my Bible study this week, I read a number of commentators who wrestled with the significance of, of the almonds on this staff. Specifically, the question of why almonds and why not, I don't know, grapes or, or, or figs or, or some other classically Jewish crop. Right? And, and the, the obvious is, well, it was, it was an almond branch, so it bore almonds, maybe. Uh, the problem is that the text doesn't tell us why almonds and not something else. And so you're writing a commentary, you've got to say something, right? Uh, you come up with ideas. In the absence of direct evidence, you, you come up with ideas, and some ideas are okay, some, some are not very good. Uh, one decent idea is that almond blossoms were white. So the commentators say white is the color of purity, and it means that, that Aaron, unlike these other tribes, well, they're meant to be pure among the people. They're meant to be holy like, like God is holy. Okay. Other commentators, they point out, like Jeremiah points out in his prophecy, that, you know, the almond ripens pretty early, uh, almost the earliest of, of all the crops in Israel. It ripens very early, and so that is the plant, that's the tree that the farmers would look at uh, to see the harvest that was coming. They would, they would take that as their, their early warning system, if you will. 
And so then the commentators say, well, uh, Aaron and his family, they're to watch over the people, like we find in Jeremiah. Other commentaries, this is my favorite group actually, uh, they point out that, that Aaron's staff came out of the tent of meeting looking like the golden lampstand that was there before the presence of the Lord, and it's true. Exodus chapter 25, you can go back and read that too if I haven't given you enough assignments today. Exodus chapter 25 says that the golden lampstand that was in the presence of the Lord in the tent of meeting was to be hammered out of a single solid piece of gold and it was to be worked into something that resembled an almond tree in full blossom. And so they say that when the staff comes out, it signifies that just as this lampstand shined the light of God's glory and his goodness on all the other tribes, so also uh, Aaron and his sons are to, to be a light for blessing to the people. And if you like a bit of speculative theology, maybe you can find a few other options too. But the truth is uh, that as interesting and maybe even as true as some of that stuff is, it's not in the text. It doesn't actually say any of that. It doesn't talk about purity. It doesn't talk about teaching. It doesn't talk about the light of God's countenance. What does this passage talk to us about? It speaks to us of life and death. It speaks to us of sin and safety. And it means that this miracle shows us simply that when all the staffs of all the tribes were brought before the Lord, only one of them came out with life. All the others emerged just as dead and dry as they were before. And then the Lord says, you, you keep this staff. You keep this living branch separated from out of all of the other tribes of the people, and this staff should be kept before the Lord. Why? Well, to be a sign. So that the grumblers might turn from their sin to the priest that God has supplied. This staff, he says, should be kept so that rebels and sinners might find life in the Lord through the way that he has appointed. It means that the application of Numbers chapter 17 is the same as the application of Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. There is a way that seems Right to man. There are many ways that seem right to us. An unending supply of options. You can pick one. You can choose your own spiritual adventure if that's what you want to do. Option after option, idea after idea, spirituality after spirituality, all with the singular exception. With the one that God has ordained, all of them lead to destruction. You know, and the Lord knows it too. He knows it better than we do. He knows what our iniquity costs us. He knows that once rebellion begins to worm its way into our lives, it has the tendency to harden our hearts. It has the tendency to stop our ears. It has the tendency to make his restraint on sin look more like Good Friday than it looks like Easter morning. And so he gave Israel the sign of Aaron's staff to restrain their sin, to tell them there's a way that leads to death, but there's a way that leads to life as well. For the same reason, the Lord gave his New Testament church what the Lord Jesus Christ called the sign of Jonah. 
Remember that one? Matthew chapter 12, beginning to read in verse 39. Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. A dead stick. Dry as a desert. Stiffer than rigor mortis, yet by the power of God, bursting with life that can never be extinguished. And Christ came out of the grave, the living priest who gives resurrection power to all who trust in him. And the meaning of the sign of Jonah is the same as the meaning of the sign of the staff. There are many ways that lead to death, but there's also a priest that God has chosen. And he gives life to God's people. Well, three points. God reveals, God restrains, finally God restores. God restores our fellowship with him through the substitute that he chooses. Look at verse 12. The people of Israel said to Moses, Behold, we perish, we are undone, we are all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Are we all to perish? Maybe not the response you expect from them. The Lord has just shown them something amazing. They have finally seen the power of the Lord in the midst of their rebellion. They receive the message of, of God's chosen priest to bring them life, and all they can see is the danger of their grumbling sin. Actually, it's a problem that many have when they first encounter the word of the Lord. The problem they have is the problem of only hearing God halfway. Now, ever since the fall in the garden, when God speaks to fallen humanity, his word to us always comes in two parts. He speaks to us first of law, and then he speaks to us of gospel. He speaks to us of sin and of salvation. He speaks to us of guilt, and he speaks to us of grace. There are many different ways that you can say it, but it all comes down to the same thing. It's a two-parted message that God has for humanity. He deals with the seriousness of our sin, and then he deals with the salvation that he's promised through Jesus Christ. And some people, when they hear the word of God, hear only half the message. Some people hear only the salvation bit. They hear God as a, a welcoming God. You know, the, the God I believe in, they'll say, he's a welcoming God. He, he's an all-accepting God. He's the benevolent, doting, heavenly grandfather. And he overlooks those, uh, those little quibbles you have with yourself, the problems that you think you might have, and he pats you on the head before he tells you you're a good little boy, just the same. And that's the way many in the world understand him. So they'll tell us that, you know, God is a God of unconditional love. And by unconditional love, what they mean is a God who is blind to unrighteousness. A God that has no standards of holiness. A God who has to wrap his arms of hospitality around everyone, because after all, that's what a God is for, isn't he? Actually, that's, uh, that's the way that Korah and his company thought about God. Numbers chapter 16, they said, we are all holy. There's nothing separating us. From the God of the universe, we can come near. We don't need anything. There's nothing between us and God. And even if there was, there's nothing that needs to be done about it. God will accept us. It's okay. It's all right. 
and they heard God halfway. There are others who hear the word of God and they hear only judgment. It's a more depressing place to be, but it's no less dangerous. And maybe you know somebody who lives in that space perpetually, almost, almost obsessively. They seem to be aware only of their own sins and their, only, their own shortcomings. It's, it's Martin Luther before the Reformation. Burdened with sin and unable to unburden himself. And some people seem to think that, you know, God is willing to, to welcome others, that there's a way to be saved for someone else, but not for them. They're too far gone. They've turned too many times. They've convinced themselves that they alone have committed the unpardonable sin. And that seems to be where Israel is at the end of chapter 17. And when we hear it at first, it, it almost sounds like progress. Finally, they understand what's gone wrong. Finally, they're awake to what they ignored in the rebellions. Finally, they've seen the power of God. Not in the fire, not in the earthquake. They've seen it in this flowering stem. Finally, they see God's power and it makes them realize the guilt of their rebellion. And at first, perhaps, that, that desperation that we hear sounds like progress. But they, too, have only heard the word of the Lord halfway. They've become convinced of the law, and now they need to hear the gospel. So chapter 18, verse 1. So the Lord said to Aaron, you and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear iniquity connected with the sanctuary, and you and your sons with you shall bear iniquity connected with your priesthood. With that declaration, the Lord is instituting a principle that we find everywhere in Scripture, and that is the principle of representation. He will count one in the place of another. The Lord is saying that in the future, the guilt and the punishment that should be meted out for rejecting the priesthood is going to fall on the head of the priest and not on the heads of the people. It is Aaron and his sons after him who will bear the iniquity concerning the sanctuary, who will bear the weight of iniquity concerning the altar. The Lord is saying it is God's chosen representative who will deal with the Lord on their behalf so that the covenant people might receive God's forgiveness. And in case you miss the weight of what God is saying in verse 1, he repeats himself in verse 5, and you shall keep guard over the sanctuary and over the altar that there may never again be wrath on the people of Israel. And it's not a new doctrine, actually. It's a reinstatement of what came before, that uh, religion that he gave them when he brought them out of e Egypt, when he said that the priest will stand as a buffer zone between my holiness and their sin. The Levites will be with them as a hedge of protection between the holiness in the tabernacle and the uncleanness in the people. The Lord is saying, we're going back to plan one because it was never broken in the first place. Gordon Wenham puts it this way. He says, The priests are thus to act as spiritual lightning rods, taking upon themselves God's anger so that the people as a whole may be spared. And if that sounds familiar to your New Testament ears, it ought to. Wenham says, The Aaronic priests, Aaron and his sons, they became 
lightning rods for the people. Judgment absorbers, we might call them. But even they never became full-fledged substitutes. That's why on the, the Day of Atonement, the high holy day of Yom Kippur, even the great high priest chosen by God to represent his people Israel, even on the day of atonement, the priest had to begin by offering a sacrifice for himself before he could offer a sacrifice for the people. On that great feast day, he had to acknowledge that he also needed to be restored to fellowship with the Lord. But the letter to the Hebrews tells us that we have a better high priest. We have a greater mediator, a man that God has chosen. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. In other words, God restores our fellowship with him through the substitute whom he has chosen. But only if we will hear the word of the Lord all the way. Only if we will submit to the directions that the Lord has provided. Because just like the word that God speaks to us, our response to him is twofold. Our great high priest came preaching a gospel and telling us to repent and believe, to turn and be saved. Repent of trusting in ourselves, repent of trusting in our own ideas, our own knowledge, our own understanding of the world in which we live and the universe around us. Repent of trusting in ourselves in our own way and instead turn and believe in the one whom he has chosen to give life to his people. Repent and believe, said Jesus. It is the only way to come to the Father. It is the only way to have peace forever. Repent and believe in the priest that God has given. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious Lord and God, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you for making Christ the one who bears the iniquity of the sins of his people. We pray, Lord, if there are any with us today who have not yet trusted in him, that you would give the grace of your Holy Spirit that they might turn to repent and to believe. Oh, Lord, do that work among our children. As they're growing, we pray that you would bring them into real faith, that they would see their need for a Savior, the same Savior who's been preached to them all their lives long, the one uh, of whose covenant sign they bear through baptism. Bring them to the place of trusting in you for full and free salvation. And be also with those who have trusted. To know that in Christ there is nothing left to separate us from the love of God. Not angels or demons or height nor depth nor life nor death nor anything else in all creation. To know that in Christ we have a word of assurance. Help us, Lord, to hear not just your law but also the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And help us to believe in him, we pray in his name.
Amen.